I am Alana from Chicken House Press, and this is Writer's Chat. For three years now, Chicken House Press and Blank Spaces Magazine have sponsored a writing contest, theme-based, wherein I present a theme and open submissions to Canadians to submit works of fiction uh, under 3,000 words written to theme. And then from those stories, a group of finalists is chosen and their work is compiled into an anthology. So in 2022, we released the anthology, The Things We Leave Behind. In 2023, we released Small Town Summer Nights. And the latest contest is, will there be a sunset? So submissions came from all across Canada. A long list was decided upon and then a short list. That's what you're going to get to hear here today. On December 14th, I brought together the eight finalists over Zoom. We had others joining us as well for the live stream as we introduced these authors to the community and celebrated their work that um, that set them apart from all the submissions and got them selected as finalists. And then ultimately a grand prize winner was determined. This contest does have a small fee and half of that collection is given to the winning story and half goes towards the production of the anthology. So I hope you enjoy hearing from these eight amazing writers, such unique voice and talent, and it's going to be such a pleasure to put this anthology together. Welcome everyone, and thank you so much for for joining tonight, for giving your time, for coming and hanging out. I am Alana Rusnak. I am the editor-in-chief of Blank Spaces Magazine and the owner-operator publisher of Chicken House Press. And this is the third time I get to host this event, the third time we've run this, this contest through the magazine, which is just a really fun way to try and generate some new new interest in the magazine specifically, but just to, to provide another opportunity for writers. So I'm so thrilled that all of you the eight finalists that are here took the time to kind of rise up to that challenge and enter the contest. That's that's always really exciting. And things like this are so fun because I love seeing the faces behind the stories because I read them blind and it's always interesting to see who is behind who is behind the stories. So June 1st is when the contest opened, asking for submissions from Canadians for short fiction under 3,000 words to the theme of Will There Be a Sunset? The contest was open until the end of August. And then at, at that point, it was me who read all those entries myself. And then from that collection, I selected the long list. Um, I believe it was 15. And that was sent out to the jury. I, I removed myself at that point and they took it. So big thanks to Daryl Bruce, Haley Down, Michelle McLaughlin, Joanne Morrison, Noah Padower-Blatt, and Karen Walker. And I think some of them are here just hiding in the background. So thank you guys. I really appreciate your help on that. So all six of those volunteers work through the stories, assigning each a grade out of 10. And then those scores were then added up to determine the top eight. And those are the stories that we are celebrating tonight. So those eight stories were sent to Ace Baker. Ace, you can give a little wave. You're going to meet him a little later. He did our grand prize selection. And uh, we're going to learn his top choice together. And that's the writer who's going to be receiving the cash prize of $185. I wish it was like a huge amount of money. But I mean, I have no control over how many entries we get. So for the ne- next year, tell your friends and we'll we'll continue to grow that pot. And I'd love to see that that really increase and just be it's just a nice way to honor to honor the the hard work that all of you have done. So I want to say a big congratulations to all the finalists. And I'm so thrilled that you could all be with us tonight. I also need to thank Pauline Shen. She is a proofreader for Blank Spaces. 
and she was a financial supporter for this contest. I have invited each of the eight finalists to share a brief excerpt of their winning story. So we'll just dive right into that. For simplicity, we're going to go in alphabetical order. So that means that we are starting with Anne Baldo. Anne's writing has previously appeared in Prism, Pulp Literature, Riddle Fence, Carousel, Sanchion, QWERTY, and the anthology Wayward and Upward. Her collection of short fiction, Morse Code for Romantics, was recently published by Porcupine's Quill. Anne will be reading an excerpt from her story when Britney Spears comes on the radio. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. We are always okay, or we say we're okay, and for years we believe this is the same thing. I know Cody, Mike says, he was one of the baseball players that had come into the bar an hour ago. When I saw him looking over at us, smiling, I smiled back, and before long he made his way to our table. He's kind of like a party guy, you know what I mean? I don't really know what you mean, I say. We are on the patio, a view of twilight traffic on Tecumseh Road, the batting cages at the end of the parking lot. Nobody plays there anymore. The fence around, gone wild with weedy vines. Dandelions shine up through the fractured asphalt, and for a moment, when the sunset hits our eyes, we can no longer see anything but gold light. Across the parking lot is an expensive furniture store that sells statues of glittery leopards, giant sequin girl pillows, Italian sofas, and teal leather. Next to that, an adult video store whose windows seem perpetually broken and covered in cardboard. The mannequins stand, peering out where the glass remains, listless in their lingerie, unchanged since the 80s. High-cut satiny underwear and black lace bodysuits, crimpy wigs, and purple eyeshadow. I think you do, he says. Come on. Why? How do you know, Cody? We are wearing the best of our best, which in 2004 means the following. Glitter body spray, white eyeshadow, halter tops, low-rise jeans, and toe rings with our platform wedges. We get up to dance when Usher's Yeah plays at the bar, and when Britney Spears comes on the radio, we listen. We buy the gleaming supermarket magazines that exploit her pain, analyze her body in bikinis. There is always a doctor at the interview who can guess at her weight like you surmise the number of jelly beans inside a glass jar. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I can't wait to hear everybody else's. Thank you, Anne. It's always so awkward when we're clapping and everyone's on mute, but everyone know that we're all celebrating. Uh, next, we have Gary Kirchner. Gary holds a master's degree in sports biomechanics. He played and coached football at McGill for three decades and taught physics at the college and high school levels during the same period. He is a competitive cross-country skier and a somewhat less competitive curler. His flute playing is earnest, if not skillful. Gary is the author of the dystopian fiction Crombie's Axiom, as well as the recently published football trilogy in the shadow of the goalposts. His first published short story was in Blank Spaces magazine. Gary will be reading from his story, Wolverine. Oh, thank you. I'll start with me raking Exter's loutish, grinning cat face with my nails. My brother would have been proud of that. Don't think like a tabby, he would scold me. Think of the most vicious animal you can, lioness, tigress, whatever. Become it. I became a Wolverine. Is a female Wolverine a Wolverineess? Who cares? My brother taught me a lot about fighting. Exter yelped to my gratification, and before he recovered, I bit into his shoulder, quickly piercing with my sharp teeth. I swatted him again with my other paw, and this time caught a piece of his ear. He stepped back, frightened, bloodied, and I glared at him, just daring him to come at me again. He didn't. I picked up my stolen fish in my mouth and disappeared within the chaotic labyrinth of collapsed buildings and concrete and twisted metal that we called the beauty. Somewhere further on, I emerged into what was once a street, although now it was pockmarked with holes and strewn with building detritus. Carcasses of destroyed structures leaned inward like lurching giants. They cast no shadows. With day distinguished from night only by a brightening of the gloom, there wasn't enough light for such things. Five cats slunk out from behind a huge angular block and confronted me. They were emaciated, sickly, Fur was matted, missing in places. One was covered in sores. I felt no revulsion. One gets accustomed to this, and I felt no sympathy. That feeling had vanished a long time ago. I recognized them, and they recognized me. They wanted my fish. They wanted me to drop it, drop it and go away. They were scared of me, and with good reason. 
in their condition, if they had attacked, I would have killed three of them before they overcame me. But they were desperate, they were starving, and starving cats will do anything. Well, I wasn't about to give up my fish, so with no warning, I leapt to my right and raced into a fissure. I was quick, and they were weak, and nobody knew these passages as well as I did. The five raced after me, but soon three of them gave up, then another. One continued the chase, the one with the least to lose, the one with the sores. He chased me with the energy of pure desperation. I stopped of a sudden and turned around, dropping the fish and putting my paw on it. Go away, Tika, I hissed. Give me half your fish, he answered. His eyes were the color of blood. No. He lunged at me, and I killed him. Such was our life. Everything had been scarce since the sky turned dark. Nobody provided for us. We fought each other. We formed clans. We stole when necessary. I managed better than most of the cats, simply because I was more vicious. Thank you. Thanks, Gary. Next, we have Barbara Latin-Yemi. Barbara just got back from a big trip, so I'm so glad that you're coming out of your exhaustion to be with us, Barb. Barbara primarily resides in the fiction world inside her head and occasionally allows that to spill over onto the page. She has published many pieces of nonfiction in several publications, including The Voice magazine, The Review newspaper, Chicken Soup for the Soul, and Maclean's. She was a finalist in the 2021 Blank Spaces Fiction Anthology Contest, and her story on Edge appears in the resulting The Things We Leave Behind anthology. Barbara has a fondness for travel, used bookstores, and everyday absurdities. She lives on a windswept rural road in North Glengarry, Ontario. Barbara will be sharing from her story, Alienation. Thank you, Alana. Uh, just a little bit of background on this story. Um, we have three people, Jake, Alberta, and Cal, and they're giving their accounts of what led up to an incident that was perhaps out of this world. I'm going to read excerpts from each of their accounts, beginning with Jake's. Jake speaks. I was already swinging the bat before I was even proper awake. It was their yelling that woke me. I knew it were no nightmare. I always knew they'd come back for me. I've watched out for them every day since the time before. They came at last in my own flipping bedroom for Pete's sake. But I was ready for them. I'd been sleeping with a baseball bat, you see. Come on, you scumbags, I hollered at them. No way I was going to let them take me again. I couldn't tell how many of them there were. They had lights in the middle of their foreheads and I was blinded, you see. I couldn't see their ugly faces. Must have been half a dozen of them anyway. Hardly a fair fight, but I kept a swinging. Then I heard a sound like thunder, and that was that. When I come to, I heard the sirens a-howling and the critters were gone. Just me bleeding on the sheets. But I made it. Them scumbags didn't get Jake freaking Woodham this time. And now a little excerpt from Alberta. Anyway, I told Trudy that I thought he'd been reading my journal. I used to leave it on the sewing table. Not that I'd written anything I cared about him seeing. It's just the idea of it. It's bad manners to go reading other people's diaries, even if you're married to them. One day, he mentioned my Aunt Iris, just out of the blue. He asked if I'm going to call her. We hadn't seen her since Mum's funeral. But I'd just written in my journal not two days before that I wanted to give her a call. Coincidence? Maybe. Seemed unlikely. It sure got me wondering. And then I told Trudy. Trudy devised the idea of me planting a bit of bait in my journal. Make something up that would provoke him to comment. Then he'd have to admit that he read it in my journal. Something outlandish so he couldn't explain it away. I'm not sure why I wrote about Crazy Jake. That old coot who says aliens abducted him back in the 70s. So stupid. It seems so implausible. I'd never met old Jake in all the time I lived at the farm even though you could see the roof of his place over the trees on the next concession. And now a few words from Cal. You got every right to go through her stuff, Cal. It's your roof she sleeps under. And bingo, there it was. Didn't even know she kept a diary until then. Just goes to show how sly she's been all these years. She tried hard to not leave any clues, but she's not too clever for Cal. Found his name, nothing else, 
but it don't take much to figure out when something's going on. You don't put a man's name in your diary unless there's something to it. That's all for now. Thank you. Okay, Chris. Chris J. Meyer is a burgeoning creative writer. There was a time in his life when writing scientific articles was common. In fact, he has published several technical pieces in journals with such titles as Annals of Botany and Journal of Experimental Botany. Although Chris has left that part of his life behind, he maintains a love for plants and science, which is good because he spends most of his time teaching botany to keen undergrads at the University of Guelph. He lives in Guelph, Ontario with his wife, three conures, con, conures? conures. <laughs> I had to look that up and it's yeah. a kind of parakeet. Yeah. Okay. So some birds. Yeah, birds. Too many, many houseplants. Chris, <laughs> sharing from his story, Lucid Observer. Thank you very much, Alana. Yeah, they're unruly birds, I must say. <laughs> so they're they're in the cage right now, so they're not going to make a make a ruckus, but Thank you very much, and uh, I love hearing all the other authors here. And I'm looking forward to hearing the the other the other authors share their stories as well. Uh, I'm going to read a little excerpt from mine, the beginning part, and then um, and then it's in third person. And then I'm going to switch to just a very short excerpt from a dream state, and it's going to be in first person. So this is Lucid Observer. It was Thursday night, and Alex had arrived at the Dream Forecasting Institute for his weekly appointment. He always looked forward to this evening as a brief escape from the demands of his life. It was a time to unplug and enjoy the small luxuries of a personalized sleeping chamber, a familiar space with plush furniture, subdued lighting, and warm hues overlaid with aromas of citrus and spice. Plus, he felt a sense of purpose contributing to the Institute's goal of exploring the unconscious mind for clues about the future. Alex took a seat on the side of the bed. Without looking, he picked up the wireless neural relay from its usual spot on the nightstand. He positioned it against the subdermal ports on the back of his neck, and it snapped magnetically into place. Alex closed his eyes and breathed deeply as he waited for the interpretation technician. The tech entered Alex's chamber a few minutes later. She was tall and slender, dressed in a one-piece beige uniform, with her hair pulled back tightly, a clinical professional. Her persona was graceful but direct calm but exacting, and her eyes deep and mesmerizing. Good evening, Alex. Anything to report before we begin? Yeah, there's this recurring dream I've been having that I'd like analyzed. Uh, I think there's some troubling details in it that you should look into. Very well. Shall I initiate? Yep. She revealed a syringe pre-filled with a cocktail of mild sedatives and synthetic neurotransmitters that redirected all sensory signals to the neural relay. Alex had consented to participate in the Institute's Lucid Observer Framework, which had the provocative ability to transmit clear visual and auditory details, including internal thoughts, to a confidential interpreter. The tech placed a comforting hand on Alex's shoulder before applying the syringe to an insertion port on the relay. Once the solution was fully injected, she discarded the syringe and helped him lay down. I hope you have a restful sleep. Good night. Uh, I, I, uh... The sedatives worked quickly, as expected. The tech exited Alex's room and walked around the corner, along a short corridor to a central observation hub. She sat in the center of the hub, surrounded by a long curved window that contained panes of one-way glass. This allowed her to discreetly examine the sleeping subjects in three separate chambers. Above the window of each chamber was a television screen. When she turned on the screens, they all filled immediately with waving amorphous projections and irregular flecks of light. Such undefined neural imagery was typical at the outset of each session. Suddenly, Alex's projection began resolving and taking shape. The tech placed an audio receiver in her left ear and began a focused observation. And then just a quick excerpt from the dream and the uh, observation. So this is in the first person. I raised the opaque protective sashes from my office windows. For the last week, the sun has been stationary, a watchful eye hovering above the western horizon, creating a permanent late afternoon glow across the city. It's picturesque, a literal snapshot in time. It's an image of a perfect day, a day without end. But I've come to realize that the important thing about wonderful moments is their rarity and transience. It makes them desirable, and elicits genuine happiness. 
A day without end has all these traits, but only for the first 48 hours or so. Now there is no relief from an ever-present heat and light source. Now the life around me is withered, parched, extinguished. And I'll leave it at that. So thank you very much, everyone. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Cheryl Scorisumas fiction, creative nonfiction, poetry, and photography have appeared in US, UK, and Canadian publications, including Baird Magazine, Aesthetica Creative Writing Award Anthology, National Flash Fiction, Exposition Review, Fatal Flaw Literary Magazine, Longridge Review, SFWP, Sugar Sugar Salt, Sanction Zine, the Anthology of the International Amy McRae Award for Memoir, Westward, Reck and Review, Pulp Literature, Sonora Review, Blank Spaces Magazine, and many others. A multi-pushcart nominee, her work placed in 47 competitions since 2019. Cheryl has an MSSC Speech Language Pathology, HBSC Psychology. Post-publication, she joined the team at Barron Magazine as Flash Creative Nonfiction Contributing Editor. You can find her on Twitter X and Blue Sky Social at Cheryl Scorey Suma. Cheryl will be reading from her story, Minutes Lost in Death's Doubt and Other Unplanned Sunsets. Great. Thanks, Alana. I hope my dog is right behind me and she's snoring. <laughs> so. Oh. Hopefully you can't hear her. That's why I blurred it. But I'm going to be reading. I usually would read from the beginning, but I thought I'd do something a little different this time. So I'm actually reading from the middle section of the story. I took from the middle two pages instead from my under five minute section. So I'll just start there. I remember when I was little, setting off with my mother to visit my sick aunt. We stood in the middle of the crowded train station while she tried to figure out which track was ours. As my mother fretted, I stared at all the newness, at the strangers passing by. I happily bathed in the excitement of all that hurriedness. My mother kept worrying aloud about the time, cursing the clock, which caused me to look up to where one hung on the station wall. How could our delay be the clock's fault, I wondered. I couldn't believe how large and beautiful it was. A shiny moon suspended high above the crowd, its brass hands looked too substantial to move on their own. I was pleasantly startled when I heard the ominous clunk of the minute hand lumbering forward, dodgily marking the passage of time. It had managed to etch the last minute on its face after all. Although just six, in that instant, I fully appreciated the relentless certainty of its course. The last minute marked, then lost, becoming part of the past. Perhaps the clock was to blame. Marked, then promptly forgotten. I pulled a juice bottle from my backpack and returned to people watching. What is the value of time after all, when you are six? For as long as I can remember, my mother was dying. By the time I turned seven, she taught me that she might disappear at any moment. By all measures, she was a healthy, vibrant woman. But for my brother and me, she offered another reality. We both recall with painful clarity those moments when mom's death days would come. My mom dramatically reposed in her bedroom, the curtain shut, lights dimmed, calling us to her bedside. Her feeble whispered tone implied the end was near as she sternly warned, your mother could die any time. Turns out she wasn't really in any immediate danger. When I was 13, I developed migraines and discovered firsthand what all my mother's dying had been about. No longer fearful for her demise and angry for the anxiety she'd instilled, I vowed to never fear death again. I've settled nicely into each stage of life. I've never been one to feel old. Right up until my diagnosis, I felt healthy, vibrant, alive. I spent laps almost every day. I tended to my herb garden so I could create gourmet meals with added gift of freshness. I loved to dance, host dinner parties for friends and family, and I was always up for another friendly debate, good conversation, even the occasional new adventure pushed by my children or my risk-seeking partner. Until this year, until 58, when my stomach swelled up almost overnight, causing my trim, fit body to finally morph into something more suiting my age, I suppose. The doctor said it was ovarian cancer with two atypical variants. My swollen abdomen was due to a cancerous fluid called ascites. He suggested a procedure to drain the fluid, followed by some chemo, possibly an operation to remove the cancer. Then he told me the truth. My brand of cancer was a fancy name one that I'd never heard of before. The kind that drove my doctor to look carefully over my shoulder as he talked. The kind that made him say, you should get your affairs in order. The kind that once named hangs in the room like a sinking balloon, helium failing, 
slowly but certainly drifting toward the floor to settle without fanfare in its final resting place. The minute counting kind. Suddenly, Death and I had become reacquainted with Ernest. I wasn't looking for a new friend, so once I recognized her, Death tried to stick to the shadows, preferring to drift in and out of my sightline. We both understood she'd get to me, but only when she was good and ready, when she'd gathered enough minutes. Thirty years ago, when I chose to marry, we still carried around video cameras. My husband and I took one on our honeymoon, hours of footage of us unabashedly cheerful, playfully documenting our journey for unknown fans, enjoying our time in the bubble of a new romance. I've watched those clips, one in particular, over and over. We'd gone on a long hike, one that first wove several miles down a wrapping staircase strung into the mountainside. Just the steepness of that climb now makes me dizzy, sitting middle-aged and stout on my too soft couch, amazed at this youthful me, at her bravery and easy smiles displayed on the screen. I watch as the two adventurers climb down to the valley floor to chatter and tease their way through the valley's lush tropical path. The young woman in the video is foreign to me, a blissful stranger who does not yet comprehend what the future will hold. She can't possibly be me. I was never that happy, that carefree. I stare at the video, fascinated, wanting to connect to her energy, to feel her certainty. But I can't, as she and I are lost to one another, made strangers by the passage of time. I swathed in hurts, unexpected experiences, and the gifts of aging and illness until I am hidden from her, and she, unable to envision the future me. Still, I envy her, even if I doubt she generally existed as she presents on screen, powerful and free of fear, laughing and joking with me from inside the outdated video cassette. I whisper, think of bargain with death. I don't want to be greedy. I don't need that lost girl's youth, her extra time still ahead, or her health. Just let me feel her certainty, her belief the best is yet to come, her ignorance of the passage of minutes, of the clock's clunk. Let me be, once again, deaf to the clock. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you. All right, Liz. Liz Turley claims her ideas are usually sparked by casual conversations with friends, stray remarks that won't leave her head, demanding to be turned into stories. She has had two novels published by Blue Denim Press, The Way Things Fall in 2020, and In Love with the Night in 2022. She's currently working on the third in the trilogy. Liz lived and worked in England and Germany before emigrating to Canada and building a career in advertising and market research. When she is not writing, she will be traveling with her husband to faraway lands. Liz will be reading from her story, Flight. Thank you. I'm wearing a gray wig to my baby daughter's funeral so no one will recognize me. Waiting in the shadows of the side street off the main square, I watch the attendant usher the mourners into the church and wrestle with the better woman who haunts me, the one Richard thought he'd married. That woman would be bent over with a sadness that makes her gasp for air. I try to feel it, the kind of grief that robs you of any desire to live. I rip the tag off the hat I bought and lower the veil over my face. They are all inside now. The square is empty, but wary of a straggler or two, I lean heavily on the cane the way I'd practiced and make my way to the mournful tolling of the tenor bell. I come from a long line of women who never should have had children. I am the last of them, and this will be the last day of my old life. The church smells of incense and furniture polish. A light breeze drifts through the oriel windows, flattening the flames of the beeswax candles. I hope to blend in with those few old women, bent, shrouded and nameless, who are fixtures in any place of worship and remember to cross myself with the holy water. I choose a seat behind a stone column near the back. There are more mourners than I expected, but a child's death will always bring them out. In nomine Patrice Filii Spiritus Sancti. They say the water was unusually rough the morning our baby girl was found. Most days the lake barely stirred itself to spill a few ripples on the beach, but that storm blasted in from the north and churned up the water, making the boats at the jetty bob and bang into each other. Maybe her body had been wedged under the trees that lean over the bay almost horizontal. The rough water must have broken her free a whole summer after she'd gone missing. Two kayakers were trying to make it to shore. They overturned and saw her below them 
One of them panicked with the shock and nearly drowned. After they were all brought in, the storm blew itself out and the lake fell silent again. Requiem aeternum dona eis domine. Thelma from the residence committee had snagged a front row seat. How she would have loved taking charge of all the breaking news with that somber expression and barely disguised glee. Did you know the mother's disappeared now? Well, the shame of it. I always said people should be more careful. There's a steep shelf down. A child can easily go under. We sent out a warning with the flyer, but does anybody take any notice? There are flowers everywhere. The arrangement closest to me has a small teddy bear in the middle with a bow at its neck. The bear looks like it's choking, its white beady eyes rolled back. I search the front row for Richard. There he is, head bowed, narrow shoulders tense. I used to love the way his hair fell just an inch over his collar. I could curl it into my fingers when I pulled him close to kiss me. He has cut it short now. There's a tight fist of panic in my stomach. Why did I come? What if he recognizes me? I imagine his disbelief and anger as he registers this new deceit. Does he never think of those early, shining, hopeful days when I was all he could ever want, before he'd realized he'd married the wrong kind of woman, one who grew up with no role models for motherly love? If only I could go to him, try to explain one more time. Maybe that's why I came. The priest is droning on. Damn it, I won't beg. I'm through begging. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you. Juliet Willows is a writer, self-love advocate, personal growth addict, and flower child wannabe with a rebel heart. She's an entrepreneur, a seeker of the simple life, and dream chaser extraordinaire. You'll often find her lost in the depths of her own imagination, silently conjuring magical worlds and secretly wishing they were real. Hailing from the land of the overly apologetic, she's a Northern girl through and through. Come along with her on a chaotic journey through pages filled with tales of unimaginable creatures, undying love, mysterious strangers, dangerous twists and turns, and a healthy sprinkling of real life tossed in for good measure. Juliet will be reading to us from her story, Golden. Thanks, Elena. I'm going to read the first part and then the last part. My story is split into four seasons. Winter. The days are short, nights long, frigid, etching frosty roadmaps on the window panes. Bones catch chill easily, brittle as the crackling logs on the hearth, snapping with every lick of the dancing flames, keeping Father Winter at bay. The old man smiles, though the dull ache in his knees reminds him of the seasons with every small push of the rocker. He knows every soft sound like he knows the resonance of his own breathing. Short and shallow these days, quickly winded, especially in the icy air beyond the door. Though his body betrays him as of late, his hearing remains sharp now, as it was a lifetime ago, half a world away, lying in muddy barracks among brothers and comrades. The kettle begins to blow its increasing whistle and he counts, one, two, three, and the whistle stops. Always three, not a second less, not one longer. The low gurgle of the boiling water over, over the earl gray tea leaves, soft squeeze with a tangerine wedge or a splash of citrus, he hates lemon. The melodic clinking of the dainty, perfectly polished silver spoon on bone china as she stirs in half a spoonful of dandelion honey. He'll only have her dandelion honey, none other. He picks the blooms for her in the spring and again in autumn, an inch of stem just exactly, no leaves, no roots. Then he watches as she weaves her magic, an old family recipe to be followed just so. A hundred turns to the left, 75 to the right, with the wooden spoon handed down from her grandmother and hers before, stained and worn smooth by time and many loving hands. A flutter of scarlet at the window catches his eye as the language shuffle on worn hardwood approaches. Another flutter, not quite so bright, joins the first as she reaches him, lowering his cup and saucer to the small table between their twin chairs. Quietly, she sits by him, picking up her knitting from the small basket at her feet. Another pair of tiny socks he'll add to the ever-growing collection in the large trunk at the foot of their bed. More than 60 years she's been knitting them, and he's been storing them. Every minuscule pair lovingly stitched, 
meticulously wrapped in white tissue paper and carefully placed with the others. He doesn't have the heart to tell her she's running out of space, doesn't have the heart to tell her it still breaks him every time, remembering the pain, the despair of those moments so many decades ago, the tiny child, too small, too early, much too early, much too weak. There weren't any others after that. Her body had been as broken as her heart and couldn't carry another life. So she'd shut herself away with her knitting needles and never stopped. The movement at the window catches her eye and she looks up from her work, smiles, turns to him and smiles more brightly still. And for the first time, he sees it. A slight haze clouding the deep blue pools he'd fallen in love with a lifetime ago. A faint tremor in her slender hands. He smiles back as the bright red cardinals peck at the seeds on the frozen windowsill, reaches for her hand in the space between them, rubs the pad of his thumb across her frail knuckles. The days end early this time of year, and they sit and watch the cardinals fly off as the sun dips beneath the frozen landscape behind an evergreen canvas in an otherwise monochrome world. Autumn. The days are growing short again. Nights quiet, lonely, weaving dreams into nightmares. Blind to the beauty of nature's canvas, he wipes a trail of tears from his leathery cheeks. His tea sits on the table beside him, cooled and untouched. On the window ledge, the male cardinal sits quietly with him, as though he knows. He probably does, the old man thinks, as he hasn't seen the scarlet critter's companion in weeks, and he's sat in the cherry tree for hours every day, calling out a heartbreaking song with no response. The small woven basket sits beneath the window, cashmere soft powder blue yarn spilling in mounds over the edge, a pair of old slightly bent knitting needles standing like tired sentinels in wait. She never did finish that last pair of tiny socks. She'd even asked him near the end what it was he kept in that basket. His heart had broken then all over again, though at the same time he'd felt relief for her. For the first time in more than six decades, she didn't know the grief she'd carried her entire life. Didn't remember the loss, the pain, the heartache. He supposed there was a silver lining in the dark clouds hovering over her. Silently, on a long-suffering sigh, he stands, shuffles to the little kitchen and pours the cold tea down the sink, placing the rinsed, empty cup on the rack to dry. He walks through every room, taking a long look at a lifetime of memories. The faded yellow paint on the kitchen walls, the sepia-toned framed photo of their wedding hanging over the brick fireplace. His bride's pretty smile turned to him. The daisy cushion, the untouched knitting, the trunk full of tiny socks, the perfectly pressed army greens hanging in the back of the bedroom closet. A simple life it's been, but he wouldn't have traded a moment of it, not the love nor the hurt. On tired legs, he steps out onto the front porch, closing the door softly behind him. The air is fresh, scented sweetly with the decay of brightly colored leaves carpeting the expanse of grass he's allowed to grow too tall. No matter now, he breathes it in as deeply as his lungs will allow, as he tips his face up to the evening sky. For decades, he sat in that front window with the love of his life, drinking dandelion honey tea, watching the sun set past the fields, the never-ending expanse of evergreens into the depths of the Pacific, where the snow-tipped mountains wink in the distance. Now he steps onto the grass, still damp from an earlier autumn rainstorm, and follows the beams shining through the clouds like spotlights. The fingers of the gods, his love had always called them. A flutter of red catches his eye as he makes his way past the back fence and into the field beyond, and as he looks up, his smile at his feathery companion. A peace fills him. A sense of calm like he's never felt before washes over him as the clouds disperse and the sun, low on the horizon, paints the sky in the most brilliant light he's ever seen. As he takes another breath, this one easier, lighter in his lungs somehow, he feels a familiar hand in his. Looking down, his eyes meet the clear, deep blue gaze of his young bride, her braid of silky, strawberry blonde locks draped over her shoulder as she smiles up at him, rosy cheeks damp. He raises her hand to his lips just as the cardinal's mate joins them and the pair fly in excited circles above their heads. His own hand, smooth and young, feels steady and sure. He winks down at his love, making her giggle in the way he's always loved, and together they walk along into the golden light, fading into it as the sun sinks down into the water. That's it. Thank you. Thank you.
All right. Last but not least, Ronald Zajac was born and raised in Montreal, where he completed a BA and MA in English literature at McGill University. His work has previously been published in Matrix, Blank Spaces, The New Quarterly, and the Chicken is Press Anthology, The Things We Leave Behind. He is currently working on a novel and story cycle. He works as a journalist in Brockville, Ontario, cornering the devil in the details and finding God in the stories they reveal. He would like to save civilization from social media, but admits that this is a bit of a stretch goal. Ron will be reading to us from his story, Dandelion Seeds. Thank you very much. Seven very hard acts to follow. Okay. Dandelion Seeds. Slowing his steps as he neared the underpass, Patrick Morrow felt certain of two things, the sanctity of art and acid reflux. The latter he called his walking impediment, a burning sensation in the lungs and windpipe as if he'd run too hard in the cold. It increased at the same rate his inspiration waned. Betraying his lectures at the college about the perils of artificial intelligence, he turned to an AI health app for an answer, and its conclusion made sense. His midlife malaise manifested as unwanted acids. This morning he'd tried and failed to paint the sunset he'd photographed at the lake over the weekend. A sublime sunset, he thought, but for reasons unknown, the divine light did not bless it. He should have expected the acids to taunt him after that. No matter. If the divine light that turned the sunset into a painting was no longer operative in him, if he was on his way to being superannuated by software, he would at least make himself useful by defending the sanctity of other people's art, especially the work of his students. Stomach acid and bilious ruminations would not keep him from the save the mural drive. And while Patrick Morrow would be a yes on the matter of saving art from erasure, on principle and without question, he figured he should still see the work up close. Speculation in the Port Fulford Times had it that visual arts students at the college, unsatisfied at the slow pace of City Hall's transition to a climate-conscious community, snuck into the underpass in the early morning hours to paint the mural on the Western Wall. It would have taken a group of them and a few nights to do something so elaborate while avoiding detection under those underpass spotlights. Patrick hoped to discern by finally observing the mural up close which of his students could have been part of this guerrilla art operation. That much he could do, acid reflux be damned. City staff wanted to erase the whole thing to avoid setting precedents on municipal property. But the murals defenders organized quickly with a petition, a Facebook page, and spare the seeds accounts on Instagram and TikTok. The walking impediment got worse as Patrick slowed down, reviving the cancer fears he thought he'd silenced with his one AI inquiry. Once, more than a decade ago, he sprinted from the downtown core downhill to the Riverside Parkway Loop, switched on by a foghorn to get a photo of a cargo ship emerging from the mist an image that turned into one of his best-known paintings. It would hang at the entrance to City Hall, then the college, before ending up in a private gallery in Toronto. That sprint would have been the better part of a kilometer and a half, and his lungs did not burn. The newspaper photos and Instagram posts did not convey this mural's own divine light in its fullness. It was a youthful, activist light, naive but purposeful. Years ago, it might have impressed him less. A beautiful woman, carefully ambiguous in her ethnicity. She could be Asian, Latina, indigenous, gently blew dandelion seeds from their stem. They rose above familiar Port Fulford landmarks under a sepia-colored Blade Runner sky. The higher seeds metamorphosed, some into doves, but most into words, cleanse, heal, revere the earth, all of them radiating beams that pierce through the dystopian smoke to open up patches of glorious blue sky. Patrick's acid conflagration spread as the woman's eyes and the graceful pattern of the dandelion seeds conjured phantoms of inspiration's past, while in his head he narrowed the list of potential culprits among his pupils and prepared a rebuke to the tired cliché that was these dandelion seeds and the mystification of the woman of color for political ends, no matter how laudable those ends. The bicameral response, marvel and deconstruct at the same time, was how it worked for him. But now the burning in the lungs got too intense for acid reflux and the pain migrated to the upper chest, a bit to the left, a concentrated fire point with sweat and nausea and dizziness. 
The tingling in the fingers of both hands became a loss of feeling. Patrick pulled the phone out of his pocket, but the fingers wouldn't close and it fell, just as the bang of a passing truck shook the sidewalk. The firepoint heated up to supernova and he heard the scream coming out of his mouth without feeling it in his lungs as he fell back against the mural. You should have seen it coming, Patrick told himself as he waited to see if this would end with the pain subsiding or with the biggest sunset of all. Thank you. Great job. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for uh, being willing to come here, being willing to read. I know that it can be it can be uncomfortable. It can be nerve wracking. It's vulnerable. So great job, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. All these eight stories that we've just heard in full are going to be published in an anthology that is scheduled to release the end of April 2024. I'll share a little bit more about that after we hear from Ace. Ace Baker is our grand prize judge. He is a writer, poet, and writing coach from Vancouver, Canada. His short story, Victory Girl, won the Storyteller Award, and another Minos Coca. Mass Cacao, that one gets me every time. I, <laughs> I always struggle with it. It won the Blank Spaces Short Fiction Contest, The Things We Leave Behind, which was the first contest of this, of this kind. So it was published in that anthology of the same name. His poetry has won the SIWC, PNWA, and Magpie Awards, among others. Both his prose and poetry have been nominated for the Pushcart Prize and National Magazine Awards. Ace and I worked together to release his short story collection through Chicken House Press. How to Make a Killing Jar came out in August of 2023 and was nominated for the Atwood Gibson Writers Trust Fiction Prize. And if you haven't read it yet, please grab yourself a copy. You won't be disappointed. It's such a powerful collection. It's been really fun getting to know Ace over the last few years and his dedication and knowledge of the craft is what compelled me to invite him to be our grand prize judge this year. And I don't know who he's selected, so I'm on the edge of my seat just, just as much as the rest of you are. So Ace, if you wanna take it away and share your thoughts and let us know. Okay, thanks, Alana. Uh, I didn't know who either until just a moment ago. So yeah, it's uh, blind all the way from the first readers through to me, so. Uh, I was kind of noting down names as uh, we were going through stories here. Um, thank you so much to Chicken House Press and Alana for trusting me to be the final judge for this contest. I think contests are a great way for writers to add to platform, build confidence, and kind of have deadlines to write towards. Those deadlines sometimes make you more uh, prolific. You, you get pieces out there. So uh, I'm, I'm a fan of contests. I didn't take the responsibility lightly. Uh, those eight stories I read again and again and again and again and in different orders and things like that, uh, pulling out different things I liked from each of those stories. Uh, in the end, two did rise to the top, and they did so for, for many reasons. One of the biggest ones, I think, was connection to the theme. So uh, will there be a sunset? The two winners connected to that theme in multiple ways. Uh, characters, plot, setting, imagery, symbolism. Uh, the sunset idea shone through their work in creative ways. Uh, the storytelling was strong in all eight. So storytelling, I, I really enjoyed the stories. And, you know, we had some that sounded a bit matrixy and some were in the head of a cat and everything else in between. So it was kind of fun to go through the stories and be entertained. And it's even better when we get to hear you uh, read tonight. Uh, everyone likes to be read too, I think. So I guess I, I need to, you know, cut to the chase and tell you that the final two that I chose, because the storytelling was strong in all of them, for me, it came down to craft, the craft of the writing. And so I'll start with a few words about the runner up. And that was uh, Dandelion Seeds. And so I love this story. Uh, connection to the theme, both literal and figurative. Uh, there's a character, Patrick Morrow, who photographs, then paints sunsets. And 
I kind of got the feeling he's in the sunset of his career. He's kind of, he's struggling and he's getting older and he's watching his students kind of move up and take his place. So his sunset of his career, his health is failing. So he might be in the sunset of his life. And uh, so there's a lot happening there. Uh, the mural that the story centers around, uh, one of it, you know, one of his students or many of his students have put it up at night illegally. And it, it kind of gives you that idea. They're willing to risk it all for their art. And uh, they're the new up and coming artists in this. The mural used the image of a BIPOC woman. And I like that it wasn't so spelled out. It's like, if you look at her, she could be this, she could be that. And she's blowing seeds from a dandelion into the sky. Uh, the yellow dandelion, now white, has kind of reached the sunset of its own life. And the seeds are set free to provide new life. So I love that idea as well. And it connects not only to the teacher, but also to one of his students in particular, Lily Feng. And uh, I don't think I heard heard about Lily that much when uh, Ronald read, but I thought her story was also compelling. And uh, when she looks at the mural, I, I just want to read you this one part. She says she feels the mural is her. She is a dandelion seed floating higher than any seed has ever been lifted. And right now she can choose which way the wind blows her. And there are beautiful images like that throughout the work. And at times uh, the writing can be more direct and powerful as well. And I want to read you this line. It says, inspiration happens when the accidents of existence collide with frail human organisms and damage them just enough to expel a cry of ecstasy. Uh, you can hear the strong language in that single sentence, inspiration, accidents, existence, collide, frail, damage, expel, cry, ecstasy in one line. Uh, in the end, we see Lily the student taking a photo of the mural and it creates a bit of a Mobius effect. Uh, she's using the same method as her teacher, and we feel like she might have some similar experiences, building her craft, making it a big part of her life, and then maybe mentoring another uh, as she reaches that stage. Uh, she might be the sunrise to Patrick's sunset. Uh, so that's that's a lovely story that was a, a strong runner-up. There's just plenty to love about dandelion seeds and how a single artwork can create connections uh, between two lives, sort of like a sunset and a horizon. So I, I love the images in this one. Strong, strong writing, powerful story. Thanks, Ronald. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's, uh, it's quite moving just to hear it uh, uh, read back to me like that. And um, yeah, that's... Um, I'm kind of I'm kind of speechless right now, but it's uh, it's really um, it's it's really an honor to to hear that, and I appreciate that very much. It's uh, I mean, I think all eight of us come to these events not only for this kind of feedback, but in, in some sense for for affirmation uh, about why we do it. It's clearly not for material wealth. <laughs> it's for this kind of wealth, this kind of wealth of experience, seeing something that sprung out of your brain, take on this kind of existence beyond it. It's, it's just, uh, it's, yeah, it's indescribable. So, um, thank you very much for that wonderful feedback. Uh, thank you. I loved how the two stories came together. Yeah. So that means, uh, we're waiting to hear what the winning story is. And, uh, for me, the winning story was golden. That's the truth, and that's the title. This writing is special. It, it will stay with me in my mind for a, a long, long time. I'll, I'll start by the connection to the theme. Uh, the title Golden obviously connects to the contest theme. And in this story, there's an older couple in the sunset years of their relationship and, and their lives. There's also a pair of cardinals, red birds, uh, to represent the two of them. And red, yes, connects to the sunsets, and red also represents their love for each other. 
uh, yellow comes through. We heard a bit of that when Juliet read parts involving dandelion honey that, you know, at first she makes it for him, then they make it together. And then when uh, she's unable to, he makes it for her according to her recipe. And when she's, she's not able to do it anymore. Sometimes the yellow came through in beautiful imagery. And we heard a bit of this in her reading today. She talked about the new cushion he gifted her. It's the palest shade of buttery yellow, her favorite color, embroidered with a dusting of tiny daisies. It reminds him of the color she'd chosen to paint the kitchen. The paint had faded along with the grief over the years and that idea of the fading colors of the sunset uh, that worked really well for me i love the organization of this piece as well very clever uh, she used the seasons winter spring summer autumn in that order and at the end you get the feeling like winters come again almost so i thought the order was very smart and there's a bit of a refrain at the beginning. It's poetic uh, at the beginning of each uh, of the seasons. So I want, I want to read this to you because I want you to hear them together. So I'm going to read you the beginning of each of the seasons, uh, just so you can hear what she did with this. The days are short, nights long, frigid, etching frosty roadmaps on the window panes. Bones catch chill easily, brittle as the crackling logs on the hearth, snapping with every lick of the dancing flame, Father Winter at bay. And that's the beginning of the first season. Second one, the days are getting longer now, night shorter, though still crisp, fresh on the skin through open windows. The etchings of winter's story have finally faded from the tempered panes, replaced by the mirage of rainbows against the glass. The silver sky of winter, transposed by the bright blue of spring, soft cerulean sweeps painted across the horizon, broad strokes of white, watercolor clouds like lace on a young bride's veil. And then the third season, the days are long, night short, sweltering, leaving trickling moisture on the window panes. Sweat sticks to the skin, folding in every crease. No chill to catch now, but the heat steals breath from lungs like a bandit in the night, and he almost wishes for winter again. Almost. And then the final season, the days are growing short again, nights quiet, lonely, weaving dreams into nightmares. Blind to the beauty of nature's canvas, he wipes the trail of tears from his leathery cheeks. And so these four act like echoes and they unite the four sections, the four seasons into a whole. I can hear alliteration, assonance, euphony, cacophony, simile, metaphor, personification, imagery in all of those. And uh, they they work together so well. That's, that's pure poetry there. Uh, word choice, voice, and sentence fluency are remarkable in this story. And they make it a lovely story to read aloud. Uh, there are lines that grip you. And I want to read three of those to you. Sorry, but I'm taking some time here. One is, his heart squeezes like a fist as he sees the sorrow hiding behind her smile. Another is, cardinals fly off to their new nest in the blooming cherry blossoms by the fence, and the red sun sits low on the greening horizon, casting coral hues across the western sky as it sinks into the Pacific Ocean. And finally, Silently, he grasps her hand in the space between them, holding the delicate fingers in his as the bright orange ball drops low in a sun-kissed sky. It takes time, going slowly, as though trying to make this moment last. 
So I think what's most beautiful about this story, Golden, is how all the elements combine to connect to the theme, the strong connotative language, the deep symbolism, the detailed imagery. They, they make this story a work of art. It's very beautiful. Uh, I'm a writer, a creative writing teacher, and a writing coach, and I could use this piece to teach much about writing craft. So that and the fact that the story will stay with me for a long time, those are uh, the greatest compliments I think I can give it. So uh, congratulations to Juliet. Congratulations, Juliet. Thank you so much, Ace. I, I don't know if, if I'm more excited about winning or getting all this amazing feedback from you. It was a pleasure to read. And uh, when you hear it aloud, you hear the time uh, you put into the phrasing. So yeah, it's just a beautiful story. I thought you were gonna cry when you read it. <laughs> uh, I, I, I came close. <laughs> the story yeah. really took me out of my comfort zone. It's it's not my usual style. Um, so I really pushed myself to new limits with this one. And I was really proud of it. And to hear the feedback that you just gave me is, well, you've made my year, so thank you. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> oh, those last three sentences are, are like your title. They're golden. So, yeah, strong please, finish. Please go ahead and use it for your teachings. <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Uh, no, it, it's it's wonderful. That's wonderful. And congratulations to the rest of you as well. Like, don't, wow. don't let this diminish your own accomplishment. I'm so excited to put this all together into the collection, into the anthology that will come out in April. And I'm so pleased that you're all going to be part of that. So we're going to get to work together for the over the next few months, bringing that all together. So that, that's really exciting. Juliet, I'll be reaching out to you tomorrow. We'll talk about your, your prize money and getting that to you. So it's a nice little bonus at Christmas time. So I'm I'm just excited to bring this all together. And so this will be the third, the third one. We have two already. Um, I don't know if you're if you're familiar with these. If you're not, I'd encourage you to pick that up along with Ace's book, remember, and and read the stories from past years. The thing I really like about these collections is that they're so eclectic. Like just the the mix of people that are here, it's so interesting. And the way everyone approaches a theme is so unique and like the voices are, are so distinct. And I I think it's fascinating the way our, our brains work and the way we, we find a different way to interpret a theme. So thank you for letting me read them and letting me choose them and just for being here tonight. The book is already available for pre-order at chickenhousepress.ca slash bookstore. It should be the first thing that you see there. Certainly send friends and family to do that. Is there anyone that wants to say something more? I know that we've taken a little more time than I said we were going to take. Ace? Sorry, I'm I'm evil for taking so much time. But uh, one of the one of the things I wanted to say, uh, Alana asked me to focus my comments on the top two today, but I'm looking forward to writing the foreword for the book they come out in. That gives me a chance to put down my comments about what I loved about each of the eight. So really looking forward to that part of it. Yeah, that'll be a really special edition. I also don't want to let this pass without marveling at how uh, inspiration works in that the uh, three out of these eight stories mention dandelions in one way or another and that that's either coincidence or some kind of uh message from above that uh spring is coming i don't know <laughs> anyway i'd just like to say uh, congratulations to the winner i thought it was a beautiful story but also uh big, big thanks to you alana not just for putting this together but for for championing the cause of creative artists writers you know for the for past decade thank you've been a marvelous uh assistance to so many people we really appreciate it no oh, thank you i think i'm doing what i was put on the earth to do like i think this this is it is my calling to just provide platform and support and just to champion writers and i'm i'm so pleased that I get to do that. That's such a privilege. And if it makes a little difference, then, then I'm very, very happy. And I'm, so I'm glad, I'm glad you're all part of that. Thank you. Big difference. Ah, <laughs> thanks Ace. Um, I don't know if you guys can see behind Ace's head, he has his How to Make a Killing Jar book. It's kind of, it's kind of flanking him. 
I will never stop plugging that book. It's such a beautiful collection. Aletta did a beautiful job editing. She made it much better than it was. So she put in a lot of time as well and put in some beautiful extras like the cover and whatnot. So yeah, big thanks to her for that. And Ace, thank you so much for the care that you took with this contest, with all the thought and the time that you put into it. It's really meaningful. And I know that when that forward does come and it includes each story individually, that's really going to be meaningful and really special for, for each of these writers. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. It was a pure pleasure reading the stories. So uh, thanks to the writers and all those hours of hard work. All right. That's all I got. Unless someone has last, last words. Thank you for giving your time. And I hope this, I hope this has been fun for you and encouraging and exciting and let's move to next steps. I'll be in touch about the book and we'll get, we'll get your stories out in the world. I think we should call ourselves team sunset. <laughs> oh, all right. Team sunset. <laughs> all, right. all right. Thanks. And thanks for everyone else that that's on, on the call too. And thank you for giving your time and for being here to support these great writers. Go pre-order the book. All right. I'll be in touch. Thanks everyone. Good night. Go to chickenheadspress.ca slash bookstore to pre-order your copy of Will There Be a Sunset? As you just heard, there will be eight stories. You will get them in full, plus more from Ace, which what a treasure and wealth of great educational knowledge. I, we could we could do a whole teaching session, a whole whole teaching series with him um let me know if you're interested in that thank you for listening and a real great way you can show support for these writers is by ordering the book so i really encourage you to do that all right thanks for being here we'll talk again soon